Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Star Trek from the Holodeck. This is the Discovery Edition, where obviously we break down Star Trek Discovery and all that goes with that. I am Michael Flores, your host today, and I am in the bridge. In? Can I be in or on the bridge? What, what, which is the best way to say that, David? We're on the bridge. Because we're also learning how to speak as well on this show. Well, now I got to actually take uh, classes in Klingon. Yeah. Grammar with uh, David Sabal. <laughs> Klingon grammar. Klingon grammar. <laughs> so, hello, David. How you doing? How's it going, everyone? All right. So, today we're going to be breaking down episodes one and two of the brand new Star Trek series, Star Trek Discovery, that aired on CBS. The show stars Sonequa Martin-Green, Doug Jones, Michelle Yao, and eventually Jason Isaacs, which is probably the only negative thing I'm going to say, is I was really feeding for some Jason Isaacs. Oh, yeah. And we yeah. didn't see him, although I saw him in the Coming Soon trailer. So I'm like, all right, well, maybe he'll be here by episode six. Yep. So I must say it was a bit odd watching Star Trek, a Star Trek show on CBS, because during my lifetime, it either aired on Fox and later Paramount's little hybrid network they had called UPN. Do you remember UPN? Oh, yeah. UPN. They always showed they had like a Star Trek block. I call it the shit channel. They had a lot of <laughs> shitty shows, but they had a, a couple good ones. And I think the flagship show of that network had to be the run of Star Trek. The role of Star Trek. I believe the tail end of Next Generation, uh, D Space Nine, as well as Voyager. And I maybe even Enterprise as well. I think UPN was still in existence when Enterprise aired. Yeah, I remember uh, watching UPN solely for their, like, I think it was like a four hour for the black For the black content? <laughs> for the UPN black content. had some great black comedies. <laughs> But they had like they, I remember they had a Moesha. Of, remember Moesha? Remember yeah. <laughs> oh, dude, Moesha. Oh, <laughs> starring Brandy. Starring Brandy. Oh. And, uh, I I try to remember the other shows that were on there. I know the Fresh Prince of Bel Air uh, show. Yeah, on UPN. They did for a while. Yeah, the reruns. So it was a bit strange, and I I do need to get used to it. Funny because as soon as I was getting prepared to watch the episode of Star Trek, I got transported into a a vessel uh, of nostalgia. I was immediately remembering all the times I watched the other premieres of Star Trek uh, back in 1985 with the premiere of Star Trek, or 1986, I believe, for Star Trek The Next Generation. Next Generation. And I immediately started transporting myself back in time and what was happening, because I have a very good memory. And I was remembering all the instances of the premieres, because I watched every single one of them, and I could place myself in time for each and every one, except, of course, the original, because I was yeah. uh, still, I think, in my father's nutsack at the time. <laughs> yeah, I think all of us were. Yeah. But it was an interesting feeling, and it was de very different when we were 
when I was getting ready to watch Discovery because a I, I wanted to watch it on CBS first because as we know it premiered the first episode premiered on CBS and I wanted to watch it on TV with all the commercials and everything because I wanted to feel that nostalgic feeling yeah I wanted to have the hype the lead in saying hey guys Star Trek Discovery is coming up next because I know you're going to be missing that when you're watching something on a streaming service because you simply push play and the show begins and there's not a lot of hoopla or excitement. Um, so I did watch it first on CBS and then I watched it on my PS4 that has CBS access on it. And, uh, it was just a very different feeling watching it. Do you agree? Absolutely. I mean, like, I think we're entering a new era in TV where everything has to be in streaming, streaming networks or apps. Yeah. Or, or even paid television as well. Like yeah. all the best TV is, is really paid nowadays, right? It is. Yeah. And I, and it's kind of like. Uh, I'm used to just like what you said, you know, sitting down, watching the commercials. In fact, when I was watching the uh, uh, the show on the app, mm -hmm. it kind of felt strange just getting those commercials in between. It did. And well, because we didn't pay the full nine dollars. We yeah. only paid five dollars. But which means still, we get 90 seconds of commercials. It still reminded me of that old time when we you had to sit through commercials. Yeah. Watching there was sh no question. shitty sitcom commercials <laughs> reminding me of all the reasons why I don't watch regular TV anymore. <laughs> all the insurance uh, yeah. commercials. The big oh bang shit theory. I mean, come on. <laughs> How many times are you going to shove that show down my throat? <laughs> Um, so like I said, we're going to be, we're going to combine the first two episodes since they were obviously originally written as one 90 minute episode. You can definitely tell you take away those commercial breaks and it, uh, which is easily discernible due to the nature of the various writing cues, such as the act structure, the narrative progression, character arc development, as well as the gimmick or the hook, which we're definitely going to talk about that. The gimmick or the hook is something we will come back to a bit later during the discussion when we begin to break down the technical aspects of the episode. Uh, and those of you that might not know what that is, we're going to explain exactly what that is as well, because I feel like the hook or the gimmick of Star Trek Discovery might be one of the most strongest gimmicks we've ever had for a Star Trek series, period. I'm not saying this is the best Star Trek ever. I'm saying that their gimmick was very well thought out, and I felt it really worked to push the story forward. But, David, we're going to get into that a little bit later after our first break. But first, I want to talk about a few things uh, pertaining to Star Trek Discovery and the news. I have to say that, aesthetically speaking, this show is absolutely gorgeous. Yes. Production design, visual effects, cinematography. Uh, the framing and or lighting, the balance between VFX and camera, I felt like it was pretty damn perfect. Uh, I also have to say that I was very happy to see Brian Fuller's name all over the show. It makes me feel good about the potential of the series, despite the fact that we know, which we're going to also talk about that at the end of the show. We're going to talk about Brian Fuller's exit and why he ended up leaving the show. But despite the fact that we lost Brian Fuller, which is debatably, in my opinion, one of the best showrunners of this era, um, at least his presence is being felt all over the show from the visuals because he, he loves those vibrant, vibrant cinematography sequences. He loves his intros, uh, which you could definitely feel the Brian Fuller presence all over the show. Now, before we continue, Dave, and we get into the news aspects of the show, I want to talk about your initial thoughts on the first two episodes. In a nutshell, what did you like most? And what left you scratching your head? And what do you see? What do you hope to see more of down the road? Just a nutshell, a few seconds so that we can kind of set the set the tone here. 
nutshell, the things I really enjoyed about the first two episodes were definitely the Klingon parts was my highlight. Mm-hmm. I love that because it showed more about the culture of the Klingons than I was expecting. And then the effects were really well done. I think they had they had that feel of a Star Trek show. And I was very pleased with the choice, the choices they made with what they did in the in the show where, where it was like the strategically chose certain locations to focus on and it wasn't all over the place and a lot of the effects felt real to me and for me that's what really helped carry on the show negatives about the show was while it was it it hit that nostalgic button of star trek and it hit kind of the feel of star trek it also i would say probably in the middle of the two episodes it felt different. I, it took me like at least two more times to view it to actually go, okay, I really, I'm really digging this. At first, when I watched, I was like going, I wasn't too sure. Yeah, and I had to rewatch it again. All right, all right, that's enough, David. That's enough. We're gonna get into all that. Yep. <laughs> Just a nutshell, but I do agree with you. Now, Star Trek Discovery special linear CBS showcase on Sunday night, David drew 19.6 million total viewers at a 1.9 demo rating and updated finals. So I I have to say it was definitely a success for CBS. Uh, Star Trek Discovery special linear CBS showcase did debut at 9.6 million. Though exact numbers have not been made available, the new Trek also led CBS All Access, the exclusive home to the sci-fi drama's second and all future episodes, to a record for subscriber signups in a single day, eclipsing the previous mark fueled by this year's Grammy Awards uh, that in turn capped the streaming service's best week and month ever and new signups. Exactly what they wanted. That's ex- that was the ex- entire point. They, CBS is trying something new. They're attempting something new. And this is a very hot button topic right now amongst a lot of the Trekkies. Um, because of the paid aspect of this TV show. If you want to watch it, you have to pay for it. Um, and people can point to CBS and complain and say, well, CBS already has a network. Why are they not airing it on there? Uh, if they want us to watch it and if they're not just trying to make money off of us, then that's what they would do. And I completely disagree with that notion. I do too. Um, CBS has always created and produced shows for paid services. They've done countless shows that they've produced for HBO, for Showtime, and other paid services. All they've done is cut the middleman out and created their own platform where they can release higher budget, higher quality productions. And that was CBS's main goal. Yes, it was also to make money because that's what businesses do. Well, how can we make more money? Well, let's cut out the middleman and create our own platform where we can then put Star Trek Discovery on and benefit from a higher production value because it's going to be a subscription or paid service. Well, on top of that, too, it's kind of like, I think, honestly, when I was seeing everyone's that was pretty much everyone's main gripe but that this is a, actually a paid service tv show i was i was thinking to myself well everyone at, to this day knows that basically netflix amazon prime 
CBS is just following where the technology is going now, uh, where the industry is going, where the industry is going right now. And that is to streaming service and higher production value. Yeah. And Disney's doing it. Disney's doing it with Disney. They're 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 going to start up their own streaming service, I believe, like next year. Yeah. And, and David, with a reported six point six million dollar price tag for every episode, there's no way CBS on their regular channel could have done a show like that. There's no way there's absolutely no way with this in this day and age with how split the market is now in terms of viewership. There's so many different options. Now there's no way a network can sustain a show with that type of budget. So what did they do? They said, well, the only way we can do just for a Star Trek show in this era is to put it on a streaming service and charge for it. It's the only way. And the and the thing also is because I remember reading someone's post about this and everyone everyone was agreeing with it except for me. And I'm like going, they brought up the fact that, well, there's other shows that rely heavily on sci-fi and visual effects, like on CW. And I'm like going, if uh, you compare yeah, no. the production value of either show. It's night and day. CW visual effects are not that great. They're not that great. There's a few shows, Supernatural 1 and a couple of the DC on CW shows that have managed to really create something nice with their visual effects department. But it's also very far and few between, meaning there isn't a lot of scenes. They don't rely heavy. They're not sci-fi heavy shows. They're not sci-fi heavy shows. And when you take a show like The Flash that is sci-fi heavy... It doesn't look good. Nine out of ten times the visual effects in those shots don't look fantastic. When you have a show like Discovery where every scene looks amazing, you're going to have to pay for it. Visual effects are not cheap. It's not a cheap process to make a sci-fi epic. And you can also point to Sci-Fi Channel, which I've seen people say that. Well, Sci-Fi Channel is paid, guys. You realize you pay $50 to $90 a month for cable, right? Well, guess what? That means you're paying for Sci-Fi Channel. Yeah, and even even if you say the Sci-Fi Channel, even with uh, some of their shows outside of Battlestar Galactica, very few shows have managed to do the Sci-Fi epic just. And Battlestar Galactica was a really, if you think about it, it's an anomaly. It really is. It really was an anomaly because, like, that show was done very well and it was done very smartly, so that could be uh, done with budget constraints. Yeah. So I just I just want to. You know, I'm I'm willing to bet that the people who are listening to this broadcast are already subscribing and watching the show. But I, I just want to urge people not to complain about it, but back it up, because if we want to continue to get Star Trek in this day and age, guess what? We're going to have to pay for it. You're not going to see this on regular TV. And that's another thing, Dave. I'm hoping that they push the boundaries of what they can do now that they're not on TV. And what I mean by that is obviously I don't mean violence and gore and language and sexuality per se, but I do feel that if you are using a medium that's not the regular television platform, push the boundaries. Use this new technology to propel your story in a way that you could not do on regular TV. Yeah. And that's another benefit of being being on a paid service or a streaming service. You have limitless options, I could I should say, where you could push those boundaries creatively and tell something very unique and different that normally could never be done on regular TV. Mm-hmm. And mark my words, it's kind of like just not Star Trek fans in general, but fans of everything. If something like this succeeds, this is this is basically a shot in the dark. If this really does succeed, it opens up the idea to other productions 
like say Lucasfilm, who might be. Hey, we don't we don't talk about that. Yeah, we don't talk about it. But if if this type of production works, could you picture if they did a live action or even the the alleged uh, con standalone TV show that yeah. they've been throwing around? The, the they've been throwing around that rumor's been. Being, has been being tossed around for quite some time, quite some time now. now. What I believe the writer or the director of Star Trek II, Ratha Khan, has been playing around with a pilot script for a TV series that they that they are actually thinking about possibly producing. So if Star Trek Discovery does good, we may get a spinoff of Star Trek, Star Trek. That, that, of, of, about Khan. I mean, how cool is that? Let's support these ideas. I mean, I have no problem paying for for well-produced content. Isn't that the nature of the beast? We've been doing it for countless decades, going to movie theaters. And if they're giving us cinematic quality TV shows, guess what? I'm willing to pay for that shit. Yeah. Like five bucks a month or let's say for the entire run of the show. All right. How much is that? Um, Roughly 18 bucks. 18 bucks to watch a cinematic quality version of Star Trek. Guess what? Here's my $18. If you charged me 50, I would pay it. Yeah. An additional article I want to get into is from THR titled Star Trek Discovery's Easter Eggs. And I put Easter eggs in quotes here because nowadays everybody's looking for that Easter egg. Oh, they are. And some of these are just not Easter eggs. I think people need to look up the definition of what Easter, Easter eggs are. Yeah. Because this definitely is not. Now, according to the article from Legacy Characters to Certain Bottle of Wine, Star Trek Discovery is loaded with references to the many incarnations of the Star Trek franchise. All right. So number one, they say the Klingon language. Uh, the first thing you've seen or heard on Discovery is the Klingon language spoken and written on screen in subtitles, which I that think is a cool. very smart decision to stick with that for yes. sure. Um, I don't consider that a Easter egg, though, at no. all. Uh, number two is a theme song. I don't think that's an Easter egg either. No Starfleet officer is complete without their uniform and the Discovery team went back to the original series as well as Star Trek Enterprise for inspiration in designing their take on the classic look. Again, I don't really feel like this is um, an Easter egg. <laughs> it's just a, a tribute or inspirational cues taken from previous Star Treks. This definitely isn't an Easter egg. However, this does include a very interesting video that I want to talk about. I'm going to actually play the entire thing for people to listen to, and then you and I are going to debate and discuss this, okay? Yes. But it also feels like putting on home. And action! The timeline of our show is 10 years before the original series. So while obviously we look far more modern than the original series looked, it would be strange if something had been really advanced and then went backwards 10 years later. It's basically what sets the stage for what we know Star Trek is today. In terms of costuming, in terms of Starfleet uniforms, we wanted to do something fresh. And I think that our costume designer, Gersha, has done a phenomenal job. I remember watching it when I was growing up, but my brothers were super excited when I started working on Star Trek. It is such an iconic look, and it's so monumental to the story and the whole Star Trek journey. A lot of people were involved in what this new iteration was going to look like. We looked at Enterprise. We looked at the original series at that point in canon, and we tried to pull across the color palette. We're looking at doing the red, blue, and gold shirt. We've come up with a system where we're doing a foiled compression panel and delta panels that we're putting in on the jackets that tell that same story of the departments. So we have gold for command, silver.
Now, that's an interesting moment or interesting element that we need to keep remembering while watching this show for some of the canon babies, I call them, uh, the people who like to keep pointing to inconsistencies. And yes, there's going to be some obvious there's going to be some inconsistencies just because we're dealing with a show uh, that's airing in 2017 and we're pointing to, you know, palette cues and technological cues taken from the 1960s. There's just no way they're going to do something that looks like that. You're not going to have that bridge. Uh, You can definitely pull from the architecture and make it look like it was built by the same people and it's the same era. And I feel like that's something they've definitely succeeded in. Specifically, with this article here, the producers have promised that you're going to see us slowly get to the original series look of the ships And of course, even the clothing as well and the progression of technology as well. And they said they wanted to pick a middle ground somewhere between Enterprise and the original series. And I feel like when you look at the uniforms we saw on screen, it really was, especially if you take a look at Enterprise and what they wore. And then you look at even the first movie, uh, the J.J. Abrams Kelvin timeline era, you look at those uniforms And they look very reminiscent of what we see in the Star Trek Discovery. So I think for the most part, they've done a great job borrowing from the eras and and making that slow progression of not just technology, but, you know, clothing. We all know clothing also changes drastically from decade to decade, but there's always some similarities uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the way it's 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 cut, the the way it lays on on individuals. Yeah, it's all the the colors, details, all those small little details that count. Yeah. Uh, number four, they say they say is also an Easter egg, and I disagree, is number four, the props. Given that Discovery set a decade before the original Star Trek series, it would seem out of place to have props with advanced technology far beyond what Captain Kirk and his team use. That's why the prop master, Mario Morea, and his team went retro with their devices. We approach the prop elements as a period piece, which is smart. That's exactly, you know, for all, for all intents and purposes, that's exactly what it is, right? When you're dealing with a show with 50 years of canon, right? Absolutely. That, that This is what was important to me as a Star Trek fan was to see. The architectural the, and design. The, the design and the architecture has to make sense to my Star Trek brain. Right, exactly. Uh, number five is the sounds, which I thought was the most spot on moment from the moment we were brought on the bridge uh, you heard all the beeps and sounds of the original Enterprise, did you not? And you know what? You bring up that, and it, I don't know why it made me happy. Oh yeah, Hear, hearing like the when she flipped the communicator, yeah, and hearing the retro beep yeah. <laughs> instead of the normal like what you would expect. It it actually does matter to my brain that basically yeah, this felt it helped it helped me actually with this series kind of see it as a Star Trek series. Absolutely. Now, last is a true Easter egg. It's the hidden wine bottle. Yes. <laughs> While some of the references to the larger Star Trek universe were more obvious, that didn't stop the producers from also hiding smaller nods in the background. And this is what Easter eggs are. This is a true definition of an Easter egg. Yeah. Take Captain Giorgio's Michelle Yao's ready room, for instance. In the room, a bottle of Chateau Picard wine can be found. According to TVGuide.com, while this is an actual real-world wine, it also has ties to Star Trek The Next Generation, 
Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Yeah, because uh, of his family. It, yes, it was revealed in that series that Picard comes from a family of winemakers, dating back to before his birth, making this a particular bottle of wine canon compliant. Yep. And that's that's what I like. That's what I liked about that for me was the hidden Easter egg that's that I an, really enjoyed. That was fun. Because I was like going, oh, yeah, they're paying homage to Picard because if you watch Star Trek Next Generation, there was there was a handful of episodes where you travel back through time in the future, wherever it is with Captain Picard. And when he goes back home to France, his family is a very well-known winemaking family. And that callback for me was actually now that was a hidden Easter egg. Yeah. That's what made it really special towards me as a Star Trek fan that they, they go into that type of hidden detail, you know, that paying homage to stuff like that. Yes. The details, like the sounds and the props and the uniforms. And that's the, the obvious. That's the obvious. The ones that really, really make fans happy is when you do something like this, where yeah. it's kind of like a little, I salute to you. I was a little ashamed of myself that I didn't catch it. I had to, you know, look it up on an article. It's like, oh, shame on me for not catching Picard's wine. <laughs> and that's that's the funny part. That's with Star Trek fans and any fans that can get those Easter eggs. It's kind of like an accomplishment. Yeah. So when I first saw it, I'm like going, oh, okay. So that's why we <laughs> they, they they paid particular attention to that wine at one point because you have to actually see that. It is actually it says Chateau Picard. <laughs> yep. Now, David, it's time to go to a very quick break, and then when we come back, we're going to jump into the rest of our discussion and our very intense breakdown, our tactical breakdown of episodes one and two of season one of Star Trek Discovery. We'll be right back. Cry havoc, and let's slip the dogs of war. The Rain Man Show. The Rain Man Show. Yeah. The new Apple updates. There's an update, right? Yeah. They're just silly. <laughs> I mean, it, it, when I think updates, I think, hey, this let's have a, now. a stronger platform, a better system. I just spitball. Better performance. Better performance. Give me some more. Give me some more ideas that you think would come with an update. Batteries consumption is reduced. Okay. You know, resolution maybe on the screen. I don't Three. need to update that. Better content, video uh, quality content. Yes. Actual bokeh effects. I, I, he's such a douche. God damn it. He's such an... In uh, English. He's an autistic douche. Did you- <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name things that nobody knows. Uh, it was a spectrometer of the atmospheric pressure. <laughs> it was a linchpin for the for the he could be for the promo for the shit. iPhone Seven. They're turning into a stupid version of uh, Facebook. Meal. I don't need a giant emoji from my mother when I'm asking her if she's coming to town this weekend. Big fucking smiley face. I don't face. need it. <laughs> <laughs> what teenager is running the Apple board meetings? Tim Cook is not a genius. You know what he's using? He's using his high school daughter to come up with ideas. He's like, hey, honey, come, let's have lunch tonight. You want to come to work? It's bring your daughter to work day. Give me some ideas. What do you guys want? It probably is. Well, dude. we like emojis. He's chewing gum. That's chewing gum. Good idea. Tim, Tim Cook needs it. Can, can we, like, get the death dealer and, like, like so let's, let's, let's uh, you know what? Let's do a change.org to kill Tim Cook. And Frankenstein back to life, Steve Jobs. Let's dig him up, sew him together. Get some backing and you that. know his brain's alive still. You know they froze that. Yeah. And, like, we'll just put him in a little machine and, 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 uh, and it'll get him to start working on Apple products again. Just like Walt Disney, they, they froze him and they're waiting for the Imagine 100 cancer. years. Oh, boy. Oh, shit. A lot of people don't know that. We have we have Walt Disney and Carbonite. Huh? <laughs> that was 
was the ultimate deal we made with George Lucas. <laughs> and there's Han Solo. We, we got the copyright details on how to make carbonite. That, they're going to Darth Vader him. We can rebuild him. Yes, that's great. <laughs> Sometimes I go and play with uh, his frozen balls. Oh. <laughs> it's really fun. <laughs> For more Rain Man, visit RainManShow.com. Have you ever wanted something so bad that you do just about anything for it? Well, that's exactly how we feel about you. That's right. AdamandEve.com wants you so bad. We're giving you 10 free gifts with your first order. You heard me right. That's 10 free gifts to spice up your love life. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, an adventurous toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. That's 10 free gifts for you shy types who've never tried Adam and Eve before. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, a sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code DEAL30 at checkout and you'll get all 10 free gifts, including free shipping. That's offer code DEAL30. That's D-E-A-L-30 at adamandeve.com. What are you looking at, nerd? Huh? I thought I was looking at my mother's old douchebag, but that's in Ohio. <laughs> Saturday. I've never been a fan of Superman because I was never a fan of that overpowered character. Oh, well, I'll shoot you then. Nope, I'm bulletproof. Well, then I'll cut you. Can't. You don't need an entire three-episode arc to give characters closure. There's little things that they're doing to give us that finale-ishness. That we, that's not even a word, but I just made it. <laughs> that's so cool, like, just to get that insight. And I think that's what makes this movie special for me. Right. Is that we have the Batman I grew up with. The Joker I grew up with. We shot him when we go to cons because he will chase after actors. Like, no, not if you're representing the show. If you're representing uh... the show, do not chase after these people, please. (laughs) Exactly. Catch up on your favorite Rain Man digital geek shows every Saturday. DC on CW, Back to Tank, Weird West Radio, The Crossroads, and more. Geek Out Saturday on Rain Man Channel 001. Listen from the Rain Man digital app or tune in. Just search RM Channel 001. Open Sesame! So, do you see, do you guys, I don't want to just be the talking head here, do you guys disagree or agree with the, the, the writer of Trekonomics? I like the replicators and holodecks. Uh, my generation, which is not that far off from y'all's, grew up with TNG, and I don't know, that's just became a staple of it, so... But do you, th- but do you see how it can pose story problems in terms of character motivation? Like, th- put yourself in their shoes. If you had everything, you just said uh, jokingly that you would never leave. If you had a replicator to holodeck. Uh, exactly. I'd be like, uh, computer, to Paul and Deanna Troy, please. <laughs> oh, my God. God. And seven of nine. Star Trek from the holodeck. Exclusively on Rain Man Digital. Go to RainmanDigitalMedia.com or Patreon.com slash RainmanDigital. End simulation. All right, Star Trek from the holodeck. The Discovery Edition is now available on iTunes and Stitcher. Simply search Star Trek from the holodeck. Leave us reviews. Give us thumbs up. Share it with your friends and loved ones. Don't be a hater. Love us. And also comment. If you guys have ideas for the show or even disagreements, leave it on the reviews or tweet us at from the holodeck. Thank you.
All right. Welcome back, everybody, to Star Trek from the Holodeck, the Discovery Edition. Today, we're going to be talking about and breaking down the first two episodes of Star Trek Discovery taken from season one. The episode titled The Vulcan, The Vulcan Hello, directed by David Samel and written by Brian Fuller and Akiva Goldsman. And episode two, Battle at the Binary Stars, directed by Adam Kane, written by Brian Fuller and Nicholas Meyer. Now, as I said earlier, we will be combining the first two episodes into one discussion. First thing is first. The one rule of Gene Roddenberry's that was thrown out the window for Discovery. Did it or did it not work? Now, of course, as we know, Roddenberry never wanted conflict amongst the crew. And this is something you and I debated several times on and off the air, David. We talked about Gene Roddenberry's rule and whether it or not it's okay to throw it out. Now, and for the most part, showrunners, writers, producers who have carried on the brand of Trek since Roddenberry's passing have respected his wishes. This has changed with Star Trek Discovery. When we see Lieutenant Commander Michael Burnham going rogue and becoming a mutineer against her captain. Yes. Captain Giorgio. I hope I'm pronouncing that correct. If not, she's dead. So, I mean, I, I don't have to worry <laughs> about it ever again. Now, the question, did it work? Now, one thing that you and I always say, if you're going to throw out a cornerstone of any franchise, particularly in this case, Trek, and something that has been a mainstay for countless years, it had better work to progress your story. Yes. I'm an avid believer of this. And after 50 plus years of Trek, there's bound to be issues of creative blocking, especially with a rule like this. When you're trying to abide to the story philosophy of the show's creator, if it doesn't deviate too far away, it can work. The writers did not waste any time in breaking this rule. It was and will be the very foundation of our leads story, Michael Burnham, which, if you haven't noticed, is what the show is about. Because the show broke this rule to push the personal story of Michael, I felt like it did work because it wasn't just done to create a single episode. Hey, you know what? We're going to make our characters fight and bicker throughout the entire run of Star Trek. There's going to be mutineers. There's going to be no loyalty. There's going to be no harmony. We're going to deconstruct and break down the very fabric of what makes Star Trek Star Trek. Yes. That would be horrible. That would be a bad decision. It would not be Star Trek. However, by using it as a character development tool to make it the spine of Michael Burnham's very character. I feel like it works because we started the series on that note. We created the, the issue or the catalyst, and now we can move forward. Now the aftermath is going to be based on the consequences of Michael Burnham's actions and the consequences of the writers breaking that rule. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, and if you watch the episode, it still pays homage to Roddenberry's, overall teaching like i i really like the fact that captain giorgio and everyone else in federation is like looking at burnham who's saying to to shoot the klingons first and they're like going that's not what federation does right we negotiate and that's been a tenant of george roddenberry is like 
not to who's go to George war, Roddenberry? Or, <laughs> sorry, did for, you, did you mean George? Are you are you trying to combine George Lucas and Gene Roddenberry into one person? Dave? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but basically, Roddenberry's teachings is basically that everyone has to get along, and that's what all federations believe. Right. So I really do like the fact that they 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 broke that rule. They broke the rule with this one, but they still kind of say. But the Federation still believes this. Right. This and, is what the Federation's all about. Right. And I understand how some people were a little cautious about it. As we know, Gene Roddenberry created a world of socialist harmony. And for the most part in the Star Trek series, it really works together. It also helps with the whole enlightenment of mankind. Yeah. And how we had to almost kill ourselves and then survive, and we made it to the other side in order to become better people. As we saw in First Contact and the aftermath of World War III, everything changed for mankind, and we started to slowly get rid of war, get rid of disease. So for you to completely throw a wrench into the Star Trek brand or the philosophy of Star Trek, you're definitely on a slippery slope, but I feel like the way it was handled I feel like it wasn't disrespectful for um, to Gene Roddenberry's original purpose of Trek or the Trek world. No, and, and just like what you just brought up right there is the fact they're trying to. For me, when I, after I watched it a second time, for me now it's like they're trying to show that progression. We we as humanity just didn't one day snap our fingers and suddenly we're enlightened. Exactly, it's and, a progression. And guess what? Not everybody's going to be as enlightened. We're going to have emotional baggage that's going to create problems and issues. Not everybody is going to be able to handle things with the same moral or ethical capabilities as the next. And that's exactly what was used to progress this story and give an excuse as to a reason why Michael Burnham would, in fact, act like this uh, because of her emotional baggage being an orphaned by Klingons, um, being emotionally chaotic, having a, an entire, you know, chaotic emotions built inside of her by the fact of being human, but being raised uh, by Vulcans. All of it, I felt worked. Mm -hmm. And it would seem that this is not only the lead character's arc, but it also would seem that this is the main narrative arc of Discovery itself. It's her. She is the myth arc of the show. And her emotional baggage and her connections to Vulcan and human upbringing. Yep. Uh, this leads to an interesting element of discovery that we haven't quite seen before. For example, every Star Trek series has been about the crew. Yes, we've had our fave go-tos, but for the most part, the series have always been about the functioning narrative of the crews and the purpose of each vessel. The five-year mission, the, the uh, strategic placement at the mouth of the wormhole. Uh, and all the politics that goes with DS9, Voyager and the journey home, Enterprise and the first small steps of humanity as they journey into outer space, uh, with more of the narrative bulk resting on the shoulders of the captains. Discovery dares to do something very different. Not only is the lead not a captain or the end-all boss, i.e. Cisco, but the focus is not a ship and her crew, but a single person with massive character flaws filled with conflicted emotions due to her past, as I was saying a minute ago. Specifically, the chaotic, conflicting upbringing of being human, but raised by Vulcans. That alone, that element alone, can propel a story. 
Oh, absolutely. For episodes. That alone can be delved into and analyzed for half a season if they wanted to. So she is the story. At least that's what the first season gimmick or hook is. She's the story. It's not Star Trek Discovery per se. It's not Discovery. Yeah, it's not the ship. It's not the Starship Enterprise. It isn't Deep Space Nine. It isn't Voyager. It isn't Enterprise. This is Lieutenant Commander Michael Burnham. She is the gimmick. She is the hook. And in a lot of ways, you could say the discovery is actually what she's learning about herself. God bless you, David. You are so right. (laughs) I'm so glad you picked up on that. Isn't that fucking poetic? Because that's the thing. It's kind of like when I first saw this, I kept thinking to myself, there's no ship. There's no ship called Discovery. There's only the we're we're on the ship, uh, uh, the USS uh, Shinzo, with uh, and there's is no call to a a, a ship called the Discovery. So I was kind of t- thrown by that. But as I as I was watching this, it really the Discovery. While I'm sure we're gonna run into a ship called the Discovery, right? It, it's more than one meaning. Yeah, the ship. The discovery itself in these two episodes is actually Burnham coming to terms with who she is. You know, she's she's this human who was raised by Vulcans. She's trying to actually do the right thing. Doesn't really know how to do the right thing because, like, one part of her is saying to do it this way, but the other part is saying, well, if you want to do it this way, you're going to have to take the high, the high road. And then she causes the mutiny because you got to remember the whole point was she calls Sarek at one point and asks him, what should I do? Right. Sarek tells her what they do and uh, basically tells him how the Vulcans dealt with the Klingons. The only way that Burnham could actually tell the captain and make sure that this works is not act as a Vulcan, but act as a human and irrationally and try to force the, force the matter. Yeah. And that's the conflict that she has within herself. And that's what, after the second watch, I'm like going, you know what? Burnham's actually a really interesting character with this internal conflict. Yeah. And and when you, you hit it right in the head, Dave, with the poetic aspect of the title of the show, Star Trek Discovery, it is about discovery of oneself, who you are as a person, and what makes you who you are. Is that not the theme of Star Trek? How many times have we heard Captain Kirk say those lines? I think it, I think it, it's, it's kind of gotten lost with a lot of star trek fans because star trek fans think that it's all about shininess and all about going out into outer space it's about exploration it's about exploration into your own self exactly human exploration and that's the genius of this show brian fuller when he pitched this idea and wrote the first season that was his point. The theme of the show was discovery not because of the name of the ship that's just a nice little nugget it has to do with her, Michael Burnham. From the very conception of this show, Brian Fuller knew one thing he said in an interview. He knew that he wanted the entire show to be about Lieutenant Commander Michael Burnham. And then from there, he was able to flesh out the entire story of what it was a of what this series was going to be about. Now, obviously, we're not saying we won't have other crew. But the myth arc was instantly built around Michael. Yeah. And the other characters at this point will be motivational story cues to push her story along. Much like episodes of Geordi helping fuel the story of the Enterprise and his crew along. You're going to have episodes like that. I'm sure you're going to have those 
those supporting roles. I hope so, because like a lot of the supporting characters around Burnham are actually pretty dang interesting. One of my favorite characters was uh, Lieutenant Saru. Yeah. And I think that's played by Doug Jones. Yeah. And Lieutenant Saru, while at first you're like going, okay, he's a bit of a coward and stuff like this. But when you actually have those tidbits in throughout the episode that tell about his character, it really does propel and help accentuate the conflict that's within Burnham. Exactly. And you need those supporting roles in order for a character be, to be able to work through their problems or their issues, their emotional baggage, whatever it may be. Guess what you need? You need to have a sounding board to bounce these problems off in order for the character to grow and develop. So the character supporting roles are going to be there. But I think it's safe to say that the show is without a doubt built around her. Now, putting an entire franchise on the shoulders of one character, will this pay off or will it backfire? Now, there was an element that I was not keen on at first, and that's Sarek. Okay, we're going we're gonna to harken back to my first statement. I felt like it was more fan service more than anything, but it ended up being something very different than I had originally expected. Yeah. And this is why... I can justify them putting a franchise on the shoulders of one character. And it's by way of Sarek, thereby focusing attention on Michael Burnham. Now, he's the philosophical element of this series, the writing device that asks the big questions, the aspect that poses questions pertinent to human nature and the evolution of a species. The way they placed him as a guiding voice for Michael was very refreshing. I expected Sarek to be nothing other than fan service. That's it. And to see that they used him in a very different way, in a way that I did not expect, was very surprising. All Star Treks have had something like this. The original series was less serialized or cohesive, you know, due to the nature of television at that time. But it was there as well and definitely bled into the movies more than anything. Yeah. TNG by way of Q with the questioning of whether or not humankind is ready to travel the stars and do they deserve to DS nine and the use of the orbs and the Bajoran prophets Voyager and the caretakers. Sarek is all of that and has the ability to be much more if they continue to utilize him. And the same way that they did for the first two episodes. And I like the fact that you brought up the fact that he's used in that regard. It, he and, is, right? And he is. He because, is that writing element. And the Sarek, for me, at first, I was like you. I was like, okay, it's going to be a fan service. Are we going to see Spock? And when they actually, you, you actually, when you actually take a look at it, this is a Sarek that he's still trying to come to terms with human nature. I like the fact that we see this Sarek that's so young that basically, yeah, he is not, he's not to that point where he's Spock's father. He's to that point that basically he's a Vulcan still trying to grow with, with the control of his emotions. And that, per, that, that actually helps propel Burnham's character because I love that whole talk with her and with Burnham and Sarek and uh, Sarek's yeah. like, yeah, saying like, you know, I'm really sorry. I couldn't under I couldn't do this. Yeah, I couldn't do that. But we all know that when he grows older with Spock, he's able to do that. And that's one of the things that he tries to teach Spock and using that 
as like a, a, a tool to actually not only propel Sarek, but also to kind of add to, to Burnham. And sh- like, that's her rallying point. Sarek is Burnham's rallying point. Yeah. And that's what she needs. And that's why I felt that if they didn't include Sarek, it would have hurt her character so badly. Yeah. Because there's no rallying point for it. Right. Exactly, man. He he was used so perfectly. I mean, he's a page ripped from, you know, philosophical literature. And that's something, isn't that something we've been begging for, for Star Trek again, to re- a return to form in that aspect? We wanted the character that was Q. We don't want Q. We don't want a Q. Yeah. But we want that sounding board. We want the Q. We want the caretakers. We want the Bajoran prophets and the orbs. These are the things that that lay the foundation for these TV shows that then may not always go back to them, but they were always a thing that jump started them. And then they always return to them by the end of the show. So if Sarah is going to be utilized in that way, God, it, it's it's just such a great addition to the cast and a great addition to the story. And it's also a very effective approach to kicking the story off very fast and it's a very smart way this is how you should use a fan service yeah i agree service should be used like this where it's done smartly and not to hinder the storytelling it's actually to help this propel the storytelling forward exactly so overall i think it's safe to say that the hook of the series definitely works the hook being a mutineer human starfleet officer who was left orphaned by a Klingon attack and raised as a Vulcan is sentenced to life in prison. Yes. That is the foundation of our series. That is the hook. I guarantee you when Brian Fuller first pitched his idea to the network, that's exactly what it was. Yes. That was his pitch. And when you think about it, that's not just a pitch for an episode. That's a pitch for a series. It's a great way. It's a great platform to really kick off your series because the show doesn't really start until the end of the first two episodes. Then you finally realize, okay, I see what the show is going to be about. And yeah. that's what you are supposed to always have. That's writing one one by the end of your pilot, which was definitely a part one and a part two, by the end of your pilot episodes, you need to know where the story's going. What's the purpose? What's the direction? What's the theme? What's the emotional baggage? Who's the antagonist? Who's the protagonist? And the antagonist with this type of show is going to be something much less obvious than the Klingons. Yes, the Klingons there are there as the tangible force, the tangible antagonist. But much like a lot of modern television is doing a lot more, more and more these days, is they're going the, the route of the um, lesser tangible, the less tangible antagonist as well. And that's the emotional demons that Michael Burnham has to deal with. Yeah, I really, uh, we talked about it off the air that I was really liking the character Takuvma, the, the, the leader of the Klingons. And I was really anticipating, oh, this guy's going to be a cool villain. But by the end of it, uh, just like what you brought up, you're right. I mean, like, Takuvma isn't there to be the main bad guy. He's there to be a symbol. And that's what the, that's what, the the antagonist is going to be is going to be for burnham is more it's not going to be a person it's not going to be a character it's going to be an idea and that that makes an antagonist uh, an idea as an antagonist is actually really really cool it's something that basically they've been doing nowadays with a lot of storytelling that 
makes it more tangible, more real. The ideology of the dead villain is what's going to end up being the, the villain. antagonist. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I totally dig that because it's kind of like it is something that Burnham can't kill. It's something that she's going to it's not as simple as going and blasting and taking it out with torpedoes. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. That's not how she's going to solve this conflict. She's going to have to solve the conflict a different way. And then when I started thinking about it, going, this makes it more interesting. Well, what is she going to do? How is she going to handle this? How is, how is any character going to handle this? And that's what propels me for discovery to find out what's coming next. That's why a lot of ways in the, after the second episode, I'm like going, God, I want to see what the third one is because we know that there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen. I don't know uh, how many episodes they're planning. I think they're planning like what's six or I forgot how many episodes that they're planning for discovery, but there's so many questions that basically now bring up that I'm really psyched to see be, where this series there'll goes. There'll be 15 episodes. 15 episodes. Yeah. That's a lot of ground to cover. So this brings us to the Klingons, David. Oh, yeah. Which you t touched on briefly. To use or not to use Klingons? That is the question. <laughs> okay, so this has been the most controversial aspect of the series to date. Oh, yeah, I know. And not just because of the obvious. Obviously, there's the, the issue of the drastic change in their appearance which the producers have promised to talk about or deal with throughout this series. They are going to explain why these Klingons look so different. different. Um, but also controversial in the fact that amongst the, the Trekkie circles, there has been debates whether or not they should hearken back to Klingons. Yes, Klingons are a fantastic villain. They've always been used pretty damn well. But Discovery's de decision to use them isn't quite what any of us had originally thought. Yes. They're not just simply a villain of sorts. And they're not just using them as a one-dimensional villain. Which is something, I mean, I, I know I'm going to get smacked and get some evil tweets posted or some comments posted on YouTube or iTunes. But for the most part. Despite the fact that the Klingons and the performances by our actors who played the Klingons were good, they were one-dimensional for the most part. Yes, you, they you, were. Um, Star Trek Three, one-dimensional. Star Trek Six, one-dimensional. But the the purpose of the story dictated that they weren't needed to be anything else. Yes. What Discovery is doing is something very different. They're making them real. And you can even point to Deep Space Nine and say, well, you know, they were used a lot in Deep Space Nine as well. And we'll get that. And get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. Now, they're doing something very different. They're delving into ancient Klingon culture and focusing on a radical aspect of their mythological beliefs and ideology, which I felt was a brilliant decision. This is something the writers of Trek have never done quite like they've never done anything quite like this before. No, they haven't done anything heavy. Except for a handful of episodes sprinkled throughout the last 50 years, we've never delved deeply into their past or even their true religious faith. Not religious beliefs, but faith. DS, DS9 used the Klingons the most and it served the series well, but nothing like this. Yes. 
this was an element I didn't care for at first, but I feel that every because I feel that every Trek needs to create its own new fresh antagonist, as we have discussed in our Patreon exclusive shows about villains and how each Star Trek show has, for the most part, stood on its own two feet in terms of villains, except for Voyager, who borrowed the Borg. Um, but it's something that I, I'm, I'm a very adamant believer of, that each Trek needs to reinvent a new villain of sorts that they can call their own. And don't rely heavily on the Trek of the past to build your own series. But if you're able to reinvent and pay tribute and push the mythos farther, then by all means, continue to do so. Yeah. And that's that's why I really dug about both episodes. My favorite parts of this episode were the Klingon parts. Uh I I thought the choices to use the Klingon language during all their scenes was was a brilliant idea. The the whole showing the ceremony, their their ceremony of like death, that was cool because that harkened back to a lot of the old episodes from Deep Space Nine and TNG when they when they delved into Worf's religion and when they brought up the the the, the name Kalis, that was awesome because that is part of Klingon culture. The light of Kalis, because Kalis is their is their god, is their one god that they follow, that they go kind of like Odin and to their Valhalla. And I I enjoyed the fact that they're really pushed and said, okay, we're gonna take something that we just they just sprinkled along the ways in throughout fifty years of history. They've only sprinkled it. We're gonna ha- tackle it head on. The whole point about like basically. I know a lot of people didn't like the fact that they look different, and I'm sure, just like what you said, they're going to uh, they're going to explain why. But if you watch the episode, you see that basically there's little hints here and there that they they're going to be talking about why they look different. Why is it that basically Takuma goes on and on about like how the Klingons need to return back to a pure pure form? That that the introduction to the uh, to the humans and we come in peace a hundred years ago destroyed their culture and destroyed not just their culture but their people and that's another thing and and they got to tread carefully when it comes to that type of theme but that's definitely something very obvious they're 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 toying with the writers of discovery are toying with it are toying with the aspects of colonialism and genocide it's it's obvious but they have to be careful not to paint the Federation into a negative light. Okay, because if they're trying to make those comparisons of colonialism and the Federation is the big bad white man, blonde hair, blue eyes, or even the Spanish, which are also blonde hair, blue eyes, come and push their ideology, their beliefs, their way of life on a primitive air quotes, because we already know the Klingons aren't necessarily primitive, yeah. but a primitive culture, um, we don't want to paint the Federation in that light, because that will also be disrespectful to Gene Roddenberry's original purpose of the Federation. Now, obviously, throughout the last several decades of Star Trek, we've seen different iterations where the Federation have uh, have delved into a darker themes, and they've we saw it into darkness. We saw it in Enterprise with the rise of what, the Terran military or something. Yes. Uh, led by Robocop, I believe. Actually, <laughs> yeah. Robocop led both of them. Also, Into Darkness. Oh, as my well. God. Yeah, you're Holy right. Holy shit. 
I just now realized that. <laughs> it was the same actor. It was the same actor. Wow, interesting. Never even noticed that. Okay, so they've always delved into seedy elements or seedy facets of the Federation. That's nothing new. But as a, as a whole, the Federation has been painted in this picture of, of enlightenment and harmony and peace and exploration. So they have to be careful not to now point paint the Federation in this dangerous light of colonialism. I do like the metaphor of the Klingons and at least how that's their view of it. That's their mm -hmm. perspective. I feel like that works and makes them less one dimensional, angry warriors and more real characters that wish to embrace and preserve their own cultural heritage. That's a strong story. And that's why that's why that whole scene with Sarek, I think that was so important to that second part of, to the second episode because it needed to actually do what you what you said is like you have to tread lightly. You have to explain it more than just as a one-dimensional thing. And Sarek explaining that the way the Vulcans treated the the Klingons, why they are at peace was because the Vulcans understand Klingon culture. The first time they met, a giant battle broke out because they didn't assert their dominance. They didn't say, hey, we're, we're, we're strong too, so they're going to punch them in the face. That was the whole thing that Burnham was trying to get at. Unfortunately, she didn't actually deliver it well enough to her captain that basically the point was to show the Klingons that they understand their culture. This is how, this is how the Klingons approach people. You punch him in the face first to show your strength. Prison mentality. You knock out the biggest man there. You knock out the biggest man there. And that's what that's what their culture was based on. Because they're they're a warrior-like culture. Yeah. The problem was the Federation doesn't understand that. But that's what the Vulcans actually said. This is what we came to understand. Every time we run into uh, into a uh, a Klingon, we fire first. That's yeah. a Vulcan hello. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. It was good. So I, I felt like overall they used the Klingons in a meaningful way. Again, not just there because it's the go-to villain of Star Trek and not because it's a nostalgic moment, which is something I was very afraid of, that they were going to simply use them so that they can sell this show through nostalgia, which is what a lot of TV shows do nowadays because everybody loves nostalgia. And sometimes we get so swept up in nostalgia, we don't sit and think for a second wait a second, was this even a good story? Or was I just excited from all the old feelings that it brought back? Exactly, yes. And that's not that. This is something that they used both the Klingons and Sarek were both brought back in a very meaningful purpose that, that did help the story move forward and will continue to help move the story forward as well. All right, so that goes to our next segment, Dave. Issues and or questions. And this is how we're going to close out the show before we give our final grade. Issues and or questions. What were the negatives that you had? Because we talked pretty positively, I, I feel, so far. But there's bound to be some little issues that you had. What were your minor issues? Give me one or two. Minor issues. It, it, this is the strange part because this, one of the strengths for me was commander burnham but then one of the negatives that i found was also commander burnham because by the end of the episode the end of the two episodes i 
I was so conflicted because I was like going, should I like her? Do I like what she's thinking? And is she a type of character that just like what we said in the beginning, is she the type of character I want to I want to follow? Did you say I want to fuck? <laughs> Jesus, David, is that uh, what you're no, about? No, to that's say? to Paul. That's to Paul. That's to Paul. <laughs> prank caller. Prank, prank caller. Call, prank caller. But ultimately, that was a minor thing for me. Is like by the end of it, I still wasn't sold on liking Burnham. Uh, the other, I'm trying to think of another negative. The other negative I'd have to say was the technology aspect. It kind of threw me off here and there as a Star Trek fan trying to think, okay, does this fit? And I found myself actually during the, the, the episodes asking myself, yes, I understand that this is supposed to be a bridge gap between Enterprise and the original series. But at some points, the technology for me was like going, this surpassed the original series. Like, how where was where was the where was the holographic technology during during uh during the original series right and it, it kind of threw me off and i had to do my research and basically tell myself no it's okay david it's all right this is this is prototype technology okay i hope <laughs> okay. i hope because I hope. Th that's also a minor issue i had was just the holographic communication device uh, it's something we never, I don't think we've seen. I don't think we saw that in Enterprise. Uh, I don't think we saw that in the original series or even the Kelvin timeline movies. Um, trying to think if we saw, I, I don't think we ever seen that. We, I mean, I, th I think the first iteration was Deep Space Nine. Yeah, uh, aboard the Defiant. Aboard the Defiant. Um, but other than that. The other time is like even further along the timeline when Shinzon and nemesis oh yeah that's right and that was it yeah and i'm like going so the technology was there but we've never seen it yeah so and this is also like a hundred and some years before next generation right yeah. so I, I i don't know I, I i feel like there's some gripes that we're gonna have to let go um because we're dealing with a show that takes place in 2017 i'm talking about the production yes and obviously there's going to be certain things that they have to do in order to appeal to modern audiences, things that worked or didn't work back in the 90s, early 2000s or the 60s is, isn't going to work or work better in 2017. So I think the, the advent of technology is going to have to be a little different. Um, I think my thing is they, they have to stay true to the architecture and the design of the time more than anything, uh, we can't expect to have a show that has 1960s technology yeah. uh, or at least their idea of what the future would look like in 1960s. Can you imagine if Star Trek Discovery did that? <laughs> I know you bring would, that up. People would like, laugh. People it would be would hokey. It just wouldn't work right. So there are certain things that we're just going to have to deal with. And that's the nature of it. That's a nature of something that you're dealing with. That's 50 years in the making. There's there's bound to be some types of conflicting issues of canon and technology and those types of things. And that's why I was a fan of retconning. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't like retconning per se, but if they were going to ever redo Star Trek, they should have retconned it completely. And you bring, uh, up, you bring up a really good point. There's something that we, I think we forgot to bring up, which is the effect of this on basically the Bible of all Star Trek fans, the Star Trek timeline. Right. Is it Kelvin? Is it Prime? And we all know at this point, it's in the Prime universe. 
At least that's what CBS told us. Right. According to Brian Fuller and company, yes, the, now, the show takes place in prime timeline. Now, someone uh, someone brought this up in an article that I read that basically it brings into question what, okay, if we're in the prime universe, did the Narada incident still happen? Did the Kelvin incident still happen? And this is something we've been questioning. Yeah. And like... The question now changed from basically, okay, well, USS Kelvin has always been said to be that point where the Kelvin and the, uh, Kelvin and the Prime Universe split off. Well, if Discovery shows that basically the Narada incident still happened, but basically maybe, maybe Nero blew up. Maybe the Narada destroyed itself. Maybe the Kelvin ship never got destroyed. Right. So we still have... Captain Kirk and everything, but that incident still happened. Maybe that will explain the difference in the technology. Yeah, but that in itself, wouldn't that also create a separate separate timeline? See, that's the thing. You're dealing with stuff like I, re I remember before we were talking, you were talking about like the branching effects of 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 time travel. Right. So if we're talking about just one... The instant of Nero traveling back... Okay, if you look at uh, Star Trek 2009, the, the re, I guess the... Not the reboot, but the... Reboot. the yeah, I guess it's the reboot yeah. of Star Trek. Um, Nero traveling from Picard's time to Kirk's time wasn't what caused the split yes. in timeline. It was the circumstances that followed... Mm -hmm. It was the his his tampering with the timeline by blowing up the Kelvin. That is what altered and split the timeline. So the Narada could have very well still crossed over. Yes. And there could be a record of it, but something completely happened or something different completely happened. Who knows? Who knows? It, it would it would definitely as we keep saying on every discovery show we've done, which is now this is our fourth one. We keep saying that it does, and I'm going to reaffirm this, it does need to be addressed. Somehow, the Kelvin and Prime timeline has to be addressed because it's a question that a lot of people have. It is. How are they going about this? That's fine and great that we're in the Prime, but don't you need to explain that to the people who don't understand that, who may watch the movies and not, not everybody reads blogs. If you don't read blogs, David, okay, if you're not on Twitter and Facebook, and you read all the Star Trek blogs and podcasts, how is a casual Star Trek fan, and when I say casual, um, the people who don't who watch the movies and TV shows, yeah, how are they supposed to know that this is not in the Kelvin timeline? Or it has nothing to do with the, the current movies. Exactly, because that's a question my mom had, and my mom is an avid Star Trek fan, loves all the TV shows, likes the new movies, loves the old movies, um, and that's a question she had for me when she saw the preview to Discovery. She's all, is this um, taking over Kirk? Like, did Kirk not happen? I'm so confused. Why? What, 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 what is this? And I had to explain it to her, and I tried to explain the timelines to her. And I said, do you remember in the movie, in the 2009 movie, where Spock explained the split timeline? She's all, yeah. And I'm like, well, we are led to believe that this is the timeline that never was altered. This is the original Star Trek timeline. And she's all, oh, well, how am I supposed to know that? And I'm like, well, you're not, I guess. You're not. Honestly, the the that's why I call it it's part of the Star Trek Bible is because hardcore Star Trek fans are the only ones that really do care about it. Yeah. And I could see like what you said is like a casual movie fan who just watches the movies, just watches the movies. 
goes here and watches this and might get confused and say, well, where's, where's the whole incident with the Kelvin? What, what does this mean for the, for the first movie that I saw with, uh, with uh, the brand new Star Trek films? That's where people might get turned off as casual fans because they'll just say, okay, I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But, I agree. All right. So final thoughts, David, and your letter grade. Go. Letter grade for this one. I give this one an A. I'm really happy with this one. It took me two watches to watch it, but two watches to watch it. Yeah. Two watches, two, two viewing, <laughs> two viewings, <laughs> two viewings to get through it. I told you today also on this Star Trek podcast, we will be learning how to speak as well. Exactly. <laughs> two viewings to get through it. And each time in those viewings, I loved every, there were points where I was like giddy. I mean, I love the music. The opening music is so good. I, I have it's to agree. It's so good. I have to agree. When when I heard when I heard when you hear the little telltale Star Trek, you know, tones and everything, so good. And it gets you hyped up. Like I say to this day, Star Trek uh, Star Trek music is some of the best music in all of soundtracks because it gets you hyped. And this is what makes me really got me really excited first just sitting there seeing the cu seeing the cutscenes and seeing the credits. Overall, I am excited to see where episode 3 goes. Um I'm excited uh, the one thing I'm really hyped to see is where uh the introduction of Jason Isaacs. I want to see that character cuz that character looks cool. And I want to see where they take uh, uh take the Klingon storyline. Because they just can't leave it now. All right. Well, I agree. And I don't think they will. All right. My final thoughts is I also give this pilot an A as well. I feel like the two episodes combined uh, did exactly what it needed to do. It jumpstart the series. It bypassed a lot of the slow burn development of our characters of the past. Um, I know in the past it took a lot of time for our characters to build up their issues and for us to truly understand them. And a lot of our other discussions on Star Trek that you can find on patreon.com slash Digital, we discuss the development of, of Picard and Kirk and the moments in time that really define them as characters. And we always point to, you know, Wrath of Khan being the catalyst that really made Kirk stand out to the audience and be somebody with unique, relatable problems. Uh, Picard and, and the, the assimilation into the Borg. Uh, from that time forward, moving all the way into the movies, that's always been Picard's foundation and a development or and the development of his character has been centered around that to the very Picard that we see in Nemesis, the last iteration that we've seen of him. Uh, that was oh, that can always be pointed back as the catalyst that really defined him and made him have his emotional baggage, at least during the times that we saw him, that we were introduced to him, and in um, starting in '86 and moving forward. Whereas with this show, they cut to the chase. Obviously, there'll still be those slow burn aspects that we that we learn about these characters as the series progresses. But the fact that they were able to build uh, or give us a built in issue of with our character is uh, is is um, is a product of the times and television. Today's television dictates that you 
get the story kicked off immediately. We this day and age with with cancellation and expectations by the networks, you don't really have time for those slow burn developments. Um, so you have to give the audience something right away. And the fact that they gave us that that hook, that is just uh, that's that's writing one hundred one. That's television writing one hundred one. That hook, a Starfleet mutineer orphaned by Klingons is sentenced to life in prison. That's that's writing 101 gimmick writing. Mm-hmm. So I love the jump start that we had. I love the way they just got the story going. No complaints on the writing aspect. So my overall thoughts on that, including the visual effects and cinematography, it's an A, a solid A. And that's me putting away my Trek baby complaints. I'm not going to have my little Trekkie baby complaints. You're your Trekkie troll? No. Because there are a few, but I, there's no reason to go into those. Um, although you better complain, you better explain those Klingon appearances. <laughs> <laughs> they will. They yeah. will. All right. So we're going to go to a very quick break, a, a second, very quick break. And then we're going to come back. And we're going to get into one final article that I found was very interesting. And, uh, and it pertains to the exit of Brian Fuller. The man, the creator of Star Trek Discovery, whose presence and funk is fell all over this bitch. All right, so we'll be right back. Fire everything! <laughs> all right, you can now find Star Trek from the holodeck on Patreon. That is right. All you new listeners out there, we do in fact offer additional Star Trek shows filled with a varied amount of discussions, ranging from the Borg to Klingons to Q to movies to Enterprise D Space Nine, available to all Patreon subscribers. Patreon.com slash Rainman Digital. Head over there, pledge. or more a month and you gain access to our entire library of Star Trek discussions. We have a good time on that show, don't we, Dave? Oh, absolutely. I enjoy talking about triples. Yeah, I also like doing shows where I don't have to do all these notes because I just know everything about Star Trek. Star Trek Discovery, I have to write tons of notes Notes. to make sure I get things right because I don't even know how to pronounce their names yet. Tons and tons of stuff to study. I keep wanting to say that walking dead girl. (laughs) Have you missed an episode of DC on CW? If you have, this is what you've missed. You know, Wild Dog won't stick around. You know, maybe he'll go off and do something else and go protect another city. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. 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 Maybe we'll go mop the floor or something. Why do you think we want Bobby back? Like, why do you think Bobby's here all the time, Mike? Come on, we don't want the Mexicans. We don't want the Mexican running the board, man. (laughs) What if, like, uh, what if Oliver just handed him a mop? Here you go. He's like, here you go, man. This is what I trained you for. Everybody else ring the bell. You just mop. Yeah. Go ahead and go ahead and mop this up. I'll get you some tacos later. No, you bring me tacos. Oh, oh right, right, right. You got to make me tacos. <laughs> Will you trust someone that's your servant to make you tacos and not spit in them? And make sure it's booger free, please. <laughs> Hold the boogers on that or I'll put an arrow in your knee. Again, bitch. <laughs> the Kraken made it. God. <laughs> oh. And there was a little still or shot of Terrific in his costume. Now, um, Terrific's costume in the comic books is a little different. He's got a weird T painted on his face, and he wears this sweet-ass leather jacket. I'm glad that they're keeping it close to the original. I guess that depends. That depends on how they handle the big T in the middle of his face. It's very cool. 
And I'm just gonna say it. He's also a black dude. I mean, you're painting a black face with a black paint. <laughs> oh my god. No, I'm <laughs> black face. <laughs> no, I mean that's like, just silly though. Oh, that's just kind of silly. That's good. At least paint it white or something. White face. Yeah. He's a white. He's a clown. I'm now. being serious. It sounded <laughs> bad. What do you think? It's gonna look weird. We might see return of characters, but one of the biggest theories that Bobby has is could Tommy be Prometheus? <sighs> and that's been a. Are you okay? Are you Jason? Are you coming? Or are you like in heat? What is going on? Do not hit her with the impregnation arrow right now. She's in heat, guys. Yeah, totally. Yeah, Tell your guns, bro. Yeah, yeah. You want to bang? Like. Check out the new DC fan show, DC on CW, covering topics from the Arrow, the Flash, and Legends of Tomorrow. Head over to RainmanDigitalMedia.com to get more details. We are the Borg. Lower your shields and surrender your ships. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. Welcome back to Star Trek from the Holodeck, the Discovery Edition, where we break down Star Trek Discovery. If you're just now tuning in on our live channel, RM Channel 001, you can find our shows past and present on iTunes as well as Stitcher. Just search from the Holodeck. Now, an article that I feel we need to get into deals with the departure of the original show creator, Brian Fuller. And the reason why I think this is so important to go over, because first off, if you know Brian Fuller, this is very, Discovery is very Brian Fuller-esque. There's tons of elements you can point to that feel like a Brian Fuller ran, run, run, ran, run, run show. Run. See, we're continuing to learn to, <laughs> to speak on Star Trek Discovery Edition. <laughs> I, there's tons of things you can point to that show and signal that this is a Brian Fuller run show. Yes. And that's something that the producers all said when Brian Fuller exited the product, the, the project, I believe in January, they all said, we are not going to change a thing that he did. And that was the entire first season script was written by Brian Fuller. The, the team that was set in place was Brian Fuller's team. That's why the visual effects look very similar to Brian Fuller's TV shows. So everything still feels Brian Fuller. But yes. I, I'm hoping moving forward into season two, if we get that far, that they manage to maintain that Fuller feeling. Now, Star Trek ousted showrunner details clash with CBS over Discovery. Now, Brian Fuller has been very silent. He kept his mouth shut, mostly due to the fact that his friends and protégés have stayed on the production. And he wanted them to. He did not want them to leave. He knew this was a great opportunity for them. So he gave him their, his well wishes and said, you guys stay on board, tow the company line, but I got to go. Now, prolific producer Brian Fuller reveals he pushed back about the network's choice of directors and met resistance with budget, casting, and costumes, among other issues. Mm -hmm. Nine months after he was ousted from his passion project, Star Trek Discovery, Former showrunner Brian Fuller is opening up about the behind-the-scenes issues that led to his dismissal from the upcoming CBS all-access drama. Fuller, speaking with EW, detailed how his initial plan for the Star Trek revival was to do it as an anthology that would journey through previous incarnations of the beloved franchise to go beyond 
where the series has gone before on the small screen. Now, I'm on board that idea. I felt like that was a good call because not only could we get a Discovery era or a, the original series era show, but it gives us the chance to move forward, forward yes. which is something that Star Trek has not managed to do in decades. The Star Trek series cannot move forward. It's stuck on the past. Yes. We have Enterprise. We have the reboot of the original series as movies. Uh, we have, of course, Discovery, which, hey, I love Star Trek, and I think there's good things to say about all of it. But one thing that I, I find more appealing than anything is the future of Star Trek, the TNG and beyond era. And that's something that Brian Fuller wanted to explore down the road. Uh, the article goes on to say that CBS, however, rejected that in favor of a single serialized drama and then taking a wait and see approach to what would follow. The original pitch was to do for science fiction what American Horror Story had done for horror, said Fuller, who also pushed for the series to feature an African-American woman at its center. Uh, he, Brian Fuller says it would platform a universe of Star Trek shows. And that's also, there's a little bit of genius to Brian. There is not a little. There is a genius to Brian Fuller's reasoning. Why would you hold yourself to just one iteration of Star Trek when you can platform various that can then spin off to other standalone or spin-off series down the road? And then and it would actually open the doorway for more Trek a lot sooner and also potentially bring in bigger audiences because there may be someone who's not as into say this show and might be into the next one. It'd be a great way to really reel in those fans. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a very, it's a, it's a way of basically kind of like what American horror story does. Right. A uh, fuller also outlined how he clashed with the network over its choice of uh, David Semel, um, who was the director of the pilot as well as other uh, costumes, stars, issues about the $6 million per episode budget and its original launch day. Star Trek Discovery was delayed twice from its planned January 2017 launch. Um, and he says, I got a dream big, Fuller told EW. I was sad for a week and then I salute the ship and compartmentalized my experience. Fuller revealed that he had long set his sights on Sonequa Martin-Green to star in Discovery, but the network pushed back because AMC would not release the actress until after her character, spoiler, on The Walking Dead was killed off screen. Yes. In October, Fuller was asked to step down as showrunner after growing up as a diehard fan of the franchise and eventually working on D Space Nine and Voyager. When the network grew frustrated that he was splitting time with Stars' hyper stylized American Gods adaptation, uh, Fuller's longtime collaborators Gretchen Berg and Aaron Harberts were tapped to replace him, along with Alex Kurtzman, who's the executive producer. I mean, I felt like Brian Fuller. And Alex Kurtzman were just two great ingredients to add to the show. Yeah. And the reason why, because it was the marrying of the two genres or the two eras of Star Trek. You had Brian Fuller, who was from the old school, right? Yes. And then you had Alex Kurtzman, who was in charge of the current Star Trek movies. Yes. So to bring those two together, it just created this seamless synergy for the fans. Like, I felt it immediately. I was like, you know what? This is a great way to do a TV show. You take the original old schooler and then you combine it with the new. And this is a great way for the TV show to feel seamless with the movies as well. And honestly, that's probably why you have that, those similar color palettes and designs as you see in the movies as well, because of that very thing. Yeah. And that, that's what made it make sense. There was a synergy to it. Yeah. 
So um, Discovery had been slated for CBS All Access. Um, the series was scripted by Brian Fuller before he departed. Uh, and he clarified recently that he's not involved at all in Discovery. Ultimately, he says, with my responsibilities elsewhere, elsewhere, I could not do what CBS needed to have done in that time they needed it. So that's the reason behind Brian Fuller's exit. Although I saw questions as to why he's so heavily involved in the credit sequences in the movie or in the TV show. And that's the reason why the guy did all the legwork in terms of pre-production was done. Yeah, he did. He did everything. He laid down. He laid down the, the frame framework that they had to follow. So this scares me a bit only because what does this mean for second season? If what, let's say the first season is a, you know, is a home run. They knock it out of the park. What does this mean for the second season? Will they stumble a bit without Brian Fuller's guidance, without his says, his do's and his don'ts? And and I have to agree. I have to agree with a lot of fans. I mean, Brian Fuller's thoughts of doing a, a serialized series that jumps in all th throughout Star Trek history is actually a really interesting idea because it'd be cool to actually quote unquote discover oh. various er uh, various things that we do not know as fans for sure throughout Star Trek history. Right. I mean, going through going through this timeline, which takes place between Enterprise and uh, uh, original the original series. It would have been interesting to all of a sudden second season flash forward suddenly we're we're in between original series and voyager or take it further voyager and uh the first uh the end of nemesis right take it right there yeah it would have been it a would have been interesting it, it would have been a great way to really push the entire mythos of star trek forward and to see what they're doing now like yeah. what what's the federation up to i mean we already know that at the end of nemesis it, it to me i felt like that era at that point for nemesis and we've talked about this relentlessly on our patreon exclusive shows um about that era that it was such a great era for stories that a lot of people felt like the next generation era was well, first off those shows were great but what else can you do in a time where there wasn't a lot of adversity there wasn't, you know, they had holodecks, they had the best, you know, galaxy class starship. Life was luxurious. So where do you go with the show besides war? However, I felt like by the end of the next generation's run, including the movies, that line that Shizon, Sh Sh Shizon, Shizon said on in Nemesis when he said a, a faltering federation handicapped or wounded by the dominion war by the borg attacks i'm like what that right there is a pitch for a new tv for show a new tv show yeah the, the 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 once powerful federation dealing with the trials of, and tribulations of a growing agency that no longer carries the weight and control and can no longer properly protect its United Federation of Planets. That is a pitch right there. That's the reason why I felt like Brian Fuller's original idea was a great concept because you can delve in the discovery aspect and then delve in the future. Such a great way to really 
tell Star Trek without being bound to seven years of one timeline. That, that Again, that's if they're going with the classic seven-year run for yes. the TV shows. So on that note, David, we do need, need to end this discussion. I want to thank everybody for listening. And also, I want to thank you, David, for pitching in and being here. We will be here every week throughout the run of Star Trek Discovery. Now, David, they do plan on taking a little hiatus. I believe they're going to air eight episodes, which takes them into November. I want to say eighth. Then they're going to take a small winter break and come back, I believe, mid-January to finish off the remaining seven episodes. Yes. So as long as they're airing, we'll be here talking about it. This is Miguel Flores signing off. Live long and prosper. I tried something new there. (laughs) It it didn't work. (laughs) I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain? It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.